Welcome to episode number 167 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about how small is small, challenges in applying IEC 670-10-2, and we'll get into what that is, and we're doing that with Keith Plum, Process Safety and Equipment Consultant, um, and Director and Owner at Integral Pharma Services in Cheshire, UK. It's going to be an interesting podcast episode talking about the international standards. Um, we're going to discuss how, what, what are the IC standards, how are they used, what is a hazardous area in relation to combustible dust, and what are some of these challenges with small-scale operations? Do they fit underneath the standard? Do they not? This is a question that we've had in the North America, we'll call it engineering guideline and standard and regulatory framework before as well. It'll be interesting to see the perspective that uh, Keith has from, from the UK. Keith, it's been over three years since we last had you on the podcast. You were back on in episode 130, or sorry, in episode 34. Um, this is episode 167, so we're looking at 130 episodes. That's uh, two and a half years. We had you way back understanding the Dust Explosion Risk Reduction Toolkit. I guess things have probably, well, the world's changed since we last talked, but in regards to you, can you just give the audience you know, some of your background, some of your experience in, in industries handling combustible dust? Hi, Chris. Well, thanks very much for having me on this podcast. As you said, I'm a process safety and equipment consultant based in the UK, but I do uh, quite a lot of work outside the UK, but mainly within Europe. So I'm, I'm very experienced with the European uh, standards in this area. Most of my work is in the pharmaceutical industry, but not just the pharmaceutical industry. I, I do some work in the um, food industry where there's quite a lot of dust um, as well as there is in pharmaceuticals uh, and in other rather odd small-scale processes. So the reason for the how small is small is because most, if not 100% of my work, is involved in, in small processes. So, I, you know, I'm not thinking about an oil refinery. I'm thinking about a very specialist process some of them are, are, are you know like large-scale labs really so um that's why I'm, I'm concerned about this area where it's very difficult when you're reading the standards to kind of make up your mind quite whether they apply or they don't uh, and the guidance that i've seen um in the european standards but also in, in north american standards still don't really answer the question yeah i'd agree wholly and it's it's a good question because if you're at the fringes of what does apply and what doesn't, I mean, the science applies, dust flammability, combustion, explosion still applies. But in terms of the regulatory landscape compliance and keeping the operation safe, is the standards that are written, are they the most effective tools at that scale? And, and do, they, you know, do they even apply? And I think that's something that's really important to get insight on. I have a couple notes here already. We are going to do another podcast episode with Keith on... I think on material data safety sheets, we had discussed through email a couple of open challenges for combustible dust, and the scale was one of them. MSDS sheets was another. I think the introduction point here is for our international audience, just what are the IEC standards um, and how is IEC 670-10-2, maybe give us the title of that one because I don't have it here, how is that used in industry? Okay, well, the... Uh, to put it in the European context, and, and slightly oddly for a country that's just left the EU, uh, this thing fits in with the EU regulations, and it, it will continue, at least in the short term, in the UK. So there is a, a regulation about explosive atmospheres, which, which came out of a, a, a European directive 
uh, on explosive atmospheres, including all forms of that. So that's vapors and dusts and mists, etc. Uh, and the way that the European system works is that the regulations are connected to what are called harmonized standards. So the harmonized standards for Europe, not unsurprisingly, it come through the European Standards Organization, uh, which is CEN, C-E-N, and that's actually in French, and it's using the uh, other languages for, for standard, which is norm. So. Um, an EN standard is a European norm, and each nation within CEN um, has their own language version of that standard. But when it comes to some of the standards, those standards have then been moved forward into the international situation. So when it says IEC, that's the Inter International Electrotechnical Commission, which is the electrotechnical bit of ISO. But the reason why it's electro is because historically, people have thought about these standards being related to electrical equipment. But actually, it's a bit of a red herring. So when it comes to hazardous area classification, that's about the properties of the material that you're handling. It hasn't got anything to do with electricity. But because traditionally and probably in North America more still, the equipment that you're using that is being um, certified for the, for the hazardous area is electrical equipment. But in the ISO world, that's essentially disappeared and anything that can cause a spark uh, is, is covered. But the way the thing works is that the electrical stuff is an IEC standard and the non-electrical stuff is an ISO standard which is just, in my opinion, in a lot of cases, just a confusion. But that's where we are. So that, that standard being an IEC standard, i.e. An, an ISO standard, effectively, actually applies globally. Every country in the world that is a signatory of ISO can use the IEC standards, and that includes the US and North America. But it also, of course, in place, places like Japan, China, Australia, and places like that as well. I'm going to try to summarize a bit of that here just to kind of um, restate it. So we have the EN standards, which are applied as European norms in Europe. And then each country can choose to, you know, have their own version of that standard. And in a lot of cases, then, you know, if, if, a, if a number of countries agree that this is a, a similar approach that they like to use, these get combined into, I don't know if harmonize is the right word for that specific case, but they get, get combined to ISO and IEC standards. You mentioned a whole kind of challenge with historically IEC referring to electrochemical, so the electric side of... Uh, it, it, now, the C, is, the C is commission. That's right, yes. Okay, sorry, sorry, Chris, you said something there that's quite important that's wrong. Okay, the point about that is within Europe, the standards organisations that are members of CEN must use... The, exactly the same standard. They're verbatim identical. They're just changed to the right language. So that's an important point. There is a whole subtlety there that we don't really have time to go in there. The point about this is that the IEC standard, in this case, 60079 Part 10 uh, 2, is 
the IEC version is verbatim the same as the EN standard. So if I get a copy of the BS British standard, it's exactly the same as the IEC standard. Okay, that's a really good point. And it, it is. It's an, it's an important point. What if you like? It's I, I, in this case, that particular standard started off as an EN standard, and it's been accepted by ISO. Although it's actually IEC, but that's part of ISO. It's been accepted by ISO. So the members of ISO have voted to accept it. And that does include the US and Canada and lots of other places as well. They are, so they, you, they are legitimate standards, if you like, in, in North America. Yeah, I think in the process safety world, you might call that like Regagep recommended and uh, now I'm not going to remember how to say it, but generally considered the the standards that can be used. And then North America, there are other regap approaches that are also valid to be used. But it's an important point. I mean, in, in the U.S. and in Canada, you might see more people pointing to NFPA requirements, but it, it is an option to also point to IEC requirements Correct. Um, under most cases. And the question is, well, who gets to decide? And, and that's a whole rigmarole on its own and it's going to come down to the authority having jurisdiction in your space who has the power to shut you down and what they want to see um and that's probably a whole other topic <laughs> sorry the other important point i raised chris is that in europe this, this the, the european norm is connected directly to the regulation so if, if you're dealing with the regulatory authorities they're going to say why aren't you using the, the standard because that's how the regulation works, that the two are connected together. Now, that wouldn't be the, that doesn't mean to say that you couldn't reference, for example, an NFPA standard, but it's not part of the regulation. There's a lot to discuss there and unpack, but in terms of this discussion on, you know, how small is small, the important point is that IEC 679-10-2 is classification of areas and it's specifically explosive dust atmospheres. In, in terms of that, in relation to combustible dust, what, what then would be a hazardous area under, under the standards? I think that feeds into the question of, okay, well, what's, you know, how small is small? Sorry, that's exactly where the how small is small bit comes in. Because in that standard, it defines a hazardous area and it includes, the definition includes the quantity. So it's an area where the quantity used is large enough for protective measures to be required. But it doesn't tell you how large large enough is. And, and that's the fundamental problem. So you're sat with a definition. Here's a definition of a hazardous area. It includes quantity, but you don't know what the quantity is. So there is some point when, when the quantity is small enough that you can say, I don't need to as apply special protective measures. I don't need classified electrical equipment but i don't know where it is i don't know where that boundary is so what kind of operations then might be falling on close to this sort of margin or to this limit you described a couple of them but can we have some more examples yeah so if you take a thing so as i say i work a lot in the pharmaceutical industry so um a lot of stuff now is in the biopharmaceutical industry where you're using some kind of biological process to make the end product and a lot of those processes need they're aqueous-based, but they use a lot of different kinds of powders. 
So you're making up solutions that may be buffer solutions, pH buffers, or they may be some kind of media that's used to uh, encourage the growth of cells. And these things are done at reasonably small scale, you know, sub sub 1,000 litres batch size of liquid. And you might be putting in there somewhere between um, less than a kilogram up to 20 kilograms of solid. Of that solid, generally speaking, you would say that not all of the solid that you were handling would be have a particle size in the region that you'd expect it to be easy to ignite. In other words, it's probably, you know, instead of being uh, in microns, it's probably in millimetres. So a good way I find of thinking about this is to think about sugar. I hope these these names make sense outside Europe, but they make sense in Europe, which is granulated sugar, caster sugar, and icing sugar. And the point about that is, is everything was the size of icing sugar, you'd have a problem. If everything is the size of caster sugar, you might have got a problem. And if you've got granulated sugar, you probably haven't. But the reality is, is that if you've got granulated sugar, it's also mixed up with some stuff that's the size of icing sugar. So if you've got 20 kilograms of a solid that's reasonably big particle size, there's a reasonable chance that a fair proportion of it is in the, you know, in the range that you could ignite. It, it's in micron size. So you then ask the question, well, how much of a risk have I got here? So what you're going to do to make up these solutions, you're going to pour somewhere maybe as low as a kilogram, but generally speaking, more like five kilograms or maybe up to 20 kilograms of a solid that contains some level of dust and you're going to pour it into a vessel. And inevitably, when you pour it in the vessel, you create some level of dust cloud. Is that dust cloud in the flammable range or near the flammable range? Should you be making it hazardous area? It's all good question. What I find is the clients argue like mad against me because they say, oh, no, well, we never had an explosion. And I say that doesn't prove a damn thing. Yeah, and I, so I'm keeping a couple notes here because there's a lot of really good points I want to circle back on. Yeah, sure. Well, let me take a crack at it. So I, I, got, a, I got maybe three different areas I want to sort of point to and we'll pull, we'll pull each one out. So one is this question of how much. And I mean, one approach is to look at the mass of what you have. So if you're you know, if you have, you're charging five kilograms and 10% of it is less than sub 500 micron, then you could do the math and figure out, you know, how, how large a room could that destroy? <laughs> and this is my, are we outdoors, you know, or how large of a fireball? There's like a quantity way to do it. I'm not saying it's the right way. I'm just saying it's a, an option. Okay. I, I agree with that, that reasonably simplistic approach, Chris, but it's a bit more than that. In other words, if you've got 10 kilograms and 10% of it's, you know, in, in, in the 500 micron area kind of size, and then you pour it in, how much of that actually gets distributed in the air? I'll add to my second point then. Is there's like the action, they're say charging that vessel, but what about the stuff that gets stuck on the side of the vessel till later? <laughs> you know, are you letting that build up over time? Yeah, I mean, that's... That's completely the case that, okay, where you get to is where I am at the present moment is you can't answer the question. The only thing you can do that's safe is to say, look, if I'm going to pour in something like the five kilograms and it's got 10% that's quite small, 
the only safe assumption you've got is to say that the space in there that where the dust can disperse is a hazardous area. There isn't another safe answer at the present moment. But what the problem you get is a pushback from clients saying, well, why should I do that? Why should I spend any money? You can't prove there's a, a, a flammable atmosphere there. And the answer is no, I can't. So that's the problem to me is, and when you look around, you say, you could say, okay, well, how do you get a handle on, on how, how much, what's the consequences likely to be? And I've had a go at doing some maths with this, trying to work this out. There was something in an NFPA thing that kind of gave me an idea. So if I may digress for a moment and look at the sister IEC standard, which is, is, uh, is, the, is the 679 part 10 part 1, which focuses on vapours. And in that standard, it has a concept which I don't think is being used in North America, which is a concept called negligible extent. What that's saying is, is that if you had a very small flammable zone, you know, the amount of vapour you had was very small, that were you to ignite it, the consequences with respect to a person would be negligible. What you probably do is singe their eyebrows and give them a bit of a shock, but you wouldn't burn them and you wouldn't do anything nasty to them with pressure. Now, that is backed up. There's, there's a research organisation in the UK called the Health and Safety Laboratories, which is part of the Health and Safety Executive in the UK. And these laboratories have been uh, doing things with explosions uh, for a long time. They, they were set up for, for mine, research for mining explosions, but they still do it now. They're out in the middle of nowhere by UK standards, uh, still very close to habitation by Canadian standards, and they have the license to blow things up. And they did some experimentation with this concept of negligible extent and demonstrated that it was completely true. If you had a very small amount of vapour and ignited it, the impact on a person would be very low. So that's built into the vapour standard. So what I did was say, okay, if I know what it is for a vapour and I work out the, you know, things like the, the heat of oxygen, you know, the heat of reaction or whatever, uh, of, of a dust, say sugar, compared to, say, ethanol or methane, how much dust can I have to have the same answer? And actually, the thing that comes out of that is actually there's more energy in, probably because there's more mass, there's more energy in sugar than there is in methane. Of course there is. That's why we eat it. That's Otherwise, we might have evolved to, to breathe in methane to try to get our energy intake rather than eating sugar. That's right. So, so when you actually look at it, even if you don't, and I, and I did a bit of poking about in, in, a, uh, in academia and found a, a paper that said, that um, I think it was about 10%. I'm not sure of the numbers, but uh, I did some read, looked in some papers that said, if you ignite a dust cloud, something like 10% of the actual dust burns. So I took that into account and said, okay, I've got this much sugar, I've got it, only 10% of it burns, what's its heat of reaction in air, et cetera, et cetera, and said, yeah, well, it's got a damn sight more energy in it than methane or ethanol or something like that. So actually, 
the potential for an explosion, the consequences of a potential dust explosion are quite nasty. So that has a bit of an impact on the question, how small is small? You know, to me, the answer is what I've got is a piece to build on. I, I always, I, if you excuse a bit of a funny analogy, is, is there is a, a bit of a thing that says, uh, if you're up to your ass in alligators, the, the idea of the exercise is to drain the swamp. And one of the points about it is, is that I've always found is what you need to do if you're going to drain a swamp is you need some firm ground to stand on. So when you're trying to solve these problems, it's like wading around up to your waist in swamp. But if you can find a bit of ground to build on, then you can start building out from that little bit of ground. And one piece of ground I've got here is this point that for a vapour, there is a, 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 a quantity where you can say that the resulting explosion isn't likely to injure a person. Can I find the same situation? in the dust. And if I could, I could answer the question, how small is small? So I got two sides to it in my mind. And this is an interesting interview. It's sort of just spitballing some ideas around. In my mind, there's the situation and the consequence. We sort of talked about the situation and the very simple approach of how much mass do you have? Can that cause an issue? I do want to just, I just want to put out there, there's there's other situational, you know, there's there's the correct use of the vessel and the like the very narrow view of how much you charge in it, but there's build up around it. There's build up on it. There's the normal use versus upset conditions. There's where are you storing the stuff? You know, if you're only using two carriers at a time, but you're storing it in, in giant silos, then, you know, a narrow view of, of just one operation, you might say, oh, there's not a challenge. There's not an issue, but there, you know, situationally there is. So that's, those all go on the situation side and the consequence side you mentioned Negligible extent. I like this idea. You need to think about pressure, flame, like impingement on workers, radiation burns, and burning particles in order to evaluate the consequence side. If you do the math, you're going to, I like the negligible extent content, concept. Anytime you're going to look at even a kilogram of dust is way more fuel than, than a box full of methane. <laughs> and so you're, you're always going to find that even if you burned a small percentage of it, you're gonna you're gonna find just on a mass basis that there's enough there to do a lot of damage. I would like to see, and there's been some there's been some classical studies done on burning, like just on say test dummies, and you know disperse a dust cloud and ignite it, and and see what kind of damage is done on those test dummies. Hopefully they're not doing them on on live people, but I mean you could use that to then evaluate for given materials as negligible extent. You'll find there's more, it's, it's even trickier than gas. Burning particles play a huge role, especially depending on the clothing that you have. Yeah, I, I, that's right. I mean, that's the point is we have to find out, because what it done with vapor was, was thermal effects and pressure effects, you're completely right that with dust, there'd also be a burning of particles point. And they get stuck in the clothing, they get stuck against the skin. <laughs> I mean, dare I say, they're a little bit like napalm. So that's the point. And to me, to, to answer this question, there's quite a lot of work. And as you rightly point out, you know, even in a kilogram, there's a lot. So if, if you're working in the, the facilities that I'm talking about, kind of a little bit answer some of your points. If you're talking about making up the meters and the buffers, you won't be huge quantities. Most of the stuff will come in uh, 50 gallon kilogram kegs. Of course, you're storing it somewhere, 
but where you're storing it, you would need a pretty big primary explosion to actually, or something like that to actually disperse the, the, the quantities in the keg. That doesn't mean to say that's a completely non-existent scenario, but it, it's yeah. still what you've got to think about. So they're using this in relatively small quantities. And when you're making it up, the first thing you're going to do is, if you've got, if it were five kilogram sort of thing, the first thing you're going to do is to dispense the the, the, the the recipe into a five kilogram bag. And because it's pharmaceuticals, in many cases, it's a special bag that has these clothes coupled and all the rest of it to minimise the, the, the contamination of the product. But it also keeps the dust inside the system. But that doesn't stop there being a, 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 a flammable atmosphere inside the vessel or whatever you're pouring into. So, and you're right that even if it, you know, I've, I've kind of done this downwards, I've got five kilograms, 10% of it's dispersible, only 10% of it actually burns in an explosion. And there's still a hell of a lot of energy in it, exactly as you've just said. Some of the other situations, you mentioned pharmaceutical. This comes up, I mean, I've seen it for currency like ink. For currency, because it's really expensive stuff, and they don't want to, they don't use much of it. You know, you're talking about micrograms, and they're saying, "Well, do we got to get our spray dryer uh, protected? And how do we do testing? Because it costs us ten thousand dollars just for the the quantity to do one shot." University labs are generally small operations like this, where they're doing testing, like simple simple grinding lines, where you just have a bag dump into a into a mill yeah there's there's lots of situations where this question comes up of how small is small and the, the i think what comes back to is you can't you can't just cross out if you i mean if you if you're if you're processing materials that are known to be combustible dust that's anything that doesn't start as a rock um chances are you need some level of hazard assessment whether or not that's a full hazard analysis as per whatever guidance and engineering approach you're using um that's probably not a bad idea <laughs> but you know, I don't think there's a way to opt out until we get this thing nailed down, like this negligible extent that you're talking about. Um, I'm just thinking that the negligible extent is going to be so small that it's going to be negligible application. But maybe, maybe we can find a number. I mean, in there are some size requirements in American standards for vessel size, and there's a lot of debate. You know, if you have a if you have something smaller than a, I think an 80 gallon drum, then it doesn't need protected. And those were put in place more for it's just difficult to get venting on that type, that size of vessel. It's difficult to get protection on the size of vessel. On the flip side, I can we have videos in the Dust Safety Academy of what happens when you ignite a dust pollution in those vessels and the lid's locked on. The thing flies like, you know, 40 feet in the air. You don't want to be hit in the face with that. It'd be a laceration and it would be a burn if you're close to the, if you're close to the drum and get impinged. Correct. So to put that negligible extent in context, that the, the, the it was given a number. It's a little bit arbitrary, but it was given a number by the uh, health and safety laboratory testing when they did it on methane. And they do say, of course, you have to correct it for other get for other vapors and gases. And the answer to that is it's 0.1 meter cubed of a uh, a vapor that is. 50% of its lower flammable limit. That's its formal de definition. But there's another caveat that that point that it must be less than 1% of the total enclosed volume. So it's pretty small. 
I'm just trying to do some math in my head here. Yeah, that is pretty small. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty small. So the point about that is, is it pretty small? So they also make the point rather correctly that if it really is 50% of its LFL, it's quite difficult to ignite. But basically, you know, they, they did a very detailed report on this and it, and it all kind of hangs together. And, and, and quite a lot of people in the European environment are using the concept. And, and it all came about, and this is quite an important adjunct to it, it all came about because the health and safety laboratories were given a contract to investigate to work for an, an outside um, gas main. Uh, and the question was from the people, do we need to put hazardous rated equipment, electrical equipment in or not when it's outside? Uh, and where the potential leaks were a long way from the electrical equipment. And they did all this work, and the answer was, no, you don't. So, and, and uh, you know, from the, from the point of view of the company that asked the question, uh, it was going to save them so much money that they could afford to pay quite a lot of money to the laboratory to get the answer. So that was the original point. But the point about there is ventilation. And the key point of the vapour standard, that's part 10, part 1, is that it includes ventilation in what you do. So in the new one, the latest version, which is 2021, um, they built on previous work. And what they say is if you have a high enough level of dilution, then you can say that you've got a zone of negligible extent. So they, they, they divide up your situation into high, medium and low dilution and say uh, if it's medium dilution then uh, it's just the same as it always was if it's if it's high dilution you can make it a zone of negligible extent and if it's low dilution in fact you're probably worse off than you thought you were so if you've got low dilution and you had a had, had an you know a, a, what we would call a zone two the lowest thing it might not be a zone two it might actually be a zone one or an extremist a zone zero so they really built in the concept of dilution which is important in this. Now, that's got to be true for dusts as well. It is, but I just realized, I was thinking that, and I just realized what the challenge is. <laughs> because I was thinking, okay, well, what is dilution? Dilution for dust is dust collection. But then the challenge is, and I'm sure the, you can go take a look at this, see what it says. The challenge is the vapor standard, 10-1. When some of dilution, that, it's probably really referring to gases that are lighter than air that float away. But what does it do for heavy gases that sink? And that's more like a dust. Okay, well, that's it. That's in the calculation. Part of the point here is, is yeah, all, I'm just, by looking at the vapor, what they've done in that world, kind of it implies that dilution is important. But you made the correct point about dust collection there. But then that in itself is a problem. Uh, there was a, a bit of an illusion. I don't know, there, there was a, in, in a um, uh, chemical safety board report, there was a little bit of a thought, this is some years ago, about the fact that the dust, number of dust explosions in the US was going up. And one of the points they made was, is that because of um, other regulations to protect people, um, health regulations to protect people, that dust extraction has become more common. But what you do with dust extraction, arguably, is take something that might be so dilute that it would never explode and concentrate in it one place to make sure it could explode. 
So the, the very collect point of collecting a dust potentially increases the risk. Yeah, I I don't buy some of the the underlying assumptions. <laughs> um, and the reason I, the, we we had a couple of podcast episodes on this um, in episodes one fifty through to one fifty four, I covered dust explosion loss history in North America and Asia and Europe, early textbooks and regulations on combustible dust. I'm going to read an excerpt here because I have it up on my screen. So I'm doing a presentation on Friday with the Research Institute of Sweden. This is from a a dust explosion textbook. Um, called Dust Explosions, Theory and Nature of Phenomena, Causes and Methods of Prevention by David Price and Dr. Harold Brown, published in 1922. And here is the the summary. (laughs) So in the preface to this textbook, it says this statement. The subject of dust explosions has not received serious consideration until recent years. In fact, no one seems to have any conception that dust alone could explode. The fact that a number of explosions have been occurring in mines and industrial plants where no explosive gas were found proved the idea to be false and led the study of this particular hazard. Later in the preface, it goes on to say, to give an idea of the scope of the study of dust explosions and the industries subject to such disasters, it may be stated that explosions are known to have occurred in flour mills, feed mills, grain elevators, starch, dextrogen, all grain handling plants, sugar, candy, chocolate, malt, spice, linseed, meal, cottonseed meal, paper, cork, linoleum, woodworking, and sulfur factories, and in coal mines. They don't mention metal here, but the report covers a lot of metal as well. Um, And this was in 1922. (laughs) <laughs> this this shows that the that more than 2100 establishments in the US are manufacturing creating dust of explosive nature the valuation of this product is more than 6.7 billion dollars which i've done the math i think that's 120 billion dollars today in US US dollars so i mean they've been happening they haven't been i don't know if they've been going up or down it's it we spend a lot of time trying to figure that out <laughs> but the the real answer is maybe we're just getting better at finding them <laughs> but they certainly didn't just start happening in the last you know number of years and, and increasing. On the flip side, I do understand the point of the dust collectors. We've had people on the podcast saying they've spent tens of millions of dollars putting dust collection systems into thermal power plants for very dusty coal, and then the next 10 years ripping them all out because <laughs> they couldn't get them to stop catching fire and have explosions. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, there's both sides of it. I'm just uh, playing devil's advocate, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I, absolutely. And... That, that, that's a point in the whole point about the dilution question. Well, if you're going to dilute it, where do you put it? And I, I suppose the point that I have, because I work so much in the pharmaceutical industry, is that's not a good answer. The better answer is to make sure that 100% of your product gets where you want it. Because... If it's quite valuable, why the blazes do you want it in the dust collection system? <laughs> but, but but that's because that's the kind of product I'm used to. So your point, correct point, Chris, here about the fact that if you poured it into a, into a, a vessel or whatever, it would go on the surface. Well, the pharmaceutical industry's answer to that is, well, I've got a, a, a clean-in-place system with spray nozzles. Uh, why don't I just put high purity water because they're nearly always water based? Why don't I just put high purity water through the spray nozzles and wash it all off? And then I haven't got the problem anymore. So I think their view of a lot of this is well, don't have dust extraction anyway, do it a different way. That, that may be in a lot of industries just not possible, but. It's a point, and I don't know, again, because of the value, I have noticed that in the 
pharmaceutical area, there are people now selling dust collectors. That are, do, you, do, you, do you know the concept of pressure shock resistant? I know generally what it means, but I don't know if that's one's the one where it destroys the vessel or damages it. I, that particular terminology means something that I can't remember. That's right. Okay. Strictly, there are two different varieties, pressure shock resistant and pressure resistant. Pressure shock resistance, it means that it will take the maximum explosion pressure, but you are allowed to have deformation. And pressure resistance is it will take the maximum explosion pressure with no deformation. Now, if you make the space small enough where the explosion can be take out, you can then make that piece take the explosion. And, and there are dust collector vendors in Europe who are using that concept. That they yeah, you you actually do it so that if you did have an explosion, it, it would just contain it. So there's no vent, there's no suppression because the equipment can take the pressure. And you see it in like some hammer mills will get built that strong, so they gotta be that that beefy anyway to to withstand the the grinding forces. Yeah. So the whole point in this still in this how small is small is if you've got a small problem, one of the key points to me is don't make it into a bigger one. So if you're, for example, I said that you, something that you were doing in these formulations, you would have to uh, dispense the bigger quantities into the recipe. And that's normally done in a, um, what's called a downflow boom, which is a highly extracted boom, which is normally there to protect the operator. But you still got the point, if you, if you do it wrong, you're going to put a load of material onto the filters. Now, on those downflow booms, the filters are local. They're part of the boom. And actually, your chances of actually creating an explosive atmosphere, if you keep it all small, is, is just that much less. So th there is a lot of, well, how do you do it in a way that keeps it small all the way around? And you don't say that you were using it in, you know, kilogram quantities in the process, but you've got a dust collector out there that's now got a lot more in dust in it so that to me is all part of the how small is hat small problem I mean, that's keeping it without it going away the best solution which is the i believe for the perspective of both but it certainly works in pharmaceuticals for different reasons is to keep it contained so if you're pouring from one container to another container or you're using some kind of transfer system make sure it stays inside it and you don't need any local extraction if you're, you know, if you're a lumber industry in Canada, in the, you know, somewhere out in, in the, you know, the big areas of Canada, that probably doesn't make any sense. But you're not on the small side anyway. Well, I think, and to come back to the original question, how small is small? Even the solutions that we've discussed, you know, dust collection, no dust collection, containing the material in the in the system, which is, if you're going to do do that before you, you know, you install a lot of dust collection systems, um, contain, collect, clean is the is the preferred uh, hierarchy there. But the, the whole point is whether, I, I think what the point is, you know, how small, small to opt out of not doing anything. So if you need a dust collection system or you're considering that you need it, it's probably not small enough to opt out. You probably have to do some sort of risk assessment hazard analysis. Um, if you have an amount of dust and create a cloud, even a kilogram of dust can create a cloud I, that could destroy, I want to say, a 10 cubic meter room. This would be one divided by 0.1 kilograms per meter cube, which would be the MEC. I have to double check that. But so, you know, it's. Yeah, a, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm kind of buying the point 
maybe uh, the, the point I was saying is that, yeah, if you did it very simply, if it were one kilogram of dispersible dust, you're right. But even so, if it's one kilogram with 10% dispersible in it and you manage to disperse it pretty well, there's still enough power in there to do things. Because if you have a room at the, the, the explosive concentration, the maximum explosion pressure is 10 bar, potentially. Well, that, no room will get anywhere near 10 bar. It won't get near a bar, more like 0.1 of a bar before the walls fall down. So even one kilogram, the 10% of it that could cause it will, will make the walls fall down if it, if it explodes properly. So, but those kind of calculations really work with you and I and, and other folks that work in our field. But do they work with the, the clients? And my problem is not really. No, they don't even make sense. <laughs> they wouldn't make sense. If that's the problem. Now, when I'm saying in the vapor world, hello, guys, I'm doing this to the British, to the, well, if I'm in Britain, the British standard, it's this, 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 and we do all this. And it's all calculable. Ten years ago, the calculation was dodgy. Now it's looking good. We can calculate it. We get a good idea of what's actually happening, you know, and, and I go away with it. I mean, I, I recently done that some stuff where I had a laboratory and they were using diethylether. Diethylether is incredibly volatile. And I said, look, you, don't need, you, you can't even spill a quarter of a litre on the floor without there being a problem. But if it were ethanol, it's a lot more than that. It's nowhere near as volatile. But I could do the mathematics and I, I got sensible answers. Can I do that with dust? No. Yep. I think I think we're rounding up towards the end of this interview. I just want to give you a chance. So we, we talked through these challenges. We talked through the type of operations. We talked about what is IEC and sort of gave some, some ideas of where this comes up. And then a, a lot of good discussion on just around the challenges. Any Anything else you want to leave the audience off with before we close out the interview? Well, yeah, I think there is. There's something that in the back of my head is, okay, I'm a fellow of the Institution of Chemical Engineers, uh, and they have a system within the institution to kind of set up kind of projects that would look at a problem. And what I was thinking of doing was starting a project to, to try and define this problem, not to say what the solution is, but to try and work out what actually is the problem. I, I look at it in food and pharmaceuticals and maybe other industries. I'm sure there's lots of other folks there got similar problems to me. So what I really wanted to do was to set up a short project, maybe three months, get a bunch of folks around the table. Can we define the problem in such a way that we could then convert it into some kind of research project or whatever to maybe get some answers? And, and I think that's quite important. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to get time uh, uh, this, you know, in the next month or so to set, try and set this project up. Although it would be the Institution of Chemical Engineers, I'm sure the institution is open enough to get people into it from, from any background that can, that can help try and define what this problem is. And we'll, we'll have a way to actually contact Keith in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 167 for this episode. If you are interested in being involved with that, shoot him an email and uh, or whatever way we would provide to contact there. And it, it sounds like a worthwhile project to me. It also sounds like something 
well, I, I like the idea of taking a step back because we so quickly get into solutions, right? I mean, you and I just did it, <laughs> but let's, let's, let's go back and define the problem that we're talking about and make sure we're solving the same thing. <laughs> um, I like that approach. So I think, I think we'll close out today for this question of how small is small. Uh, I believe it to be unanswered, but here's some highlights that were covered in this episode for it. Um, Keith, as always, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the effort and the work you've done over, over many, many, many years over there in the UK and Europe. In, in processes and safety and equipment consulting and process safety as a, as a field itself, uh, dust explosions and gas explosions. I really appreciate it. I look forward to the chance to get you back on the podcast um, to cover this topic and, and hopefully that topic of material safety data sheets again in the future. And just want to say thank you for coming on. Okay. Well, thanks, Chris, for having me. And it's been very interesting having this discussion. Uh, thanks so much, Keith. We'll be talking soon. Okay. Bye now. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Keith Plum, Process Safety and Equipment Consultant and Director and Owner at Integral Pharma Services based out of the UK. We're talking around this, this discussion of how small is small. We related to IEC 670-10-2, which is the hazardous area classification standard for combustible dust. 10-1 is the same thing, but for vapors and gases. And you heard us reference that a bit throughout. It's sort of a, just an open discussion of this topic. The challenge is there is a definition for when hazardous area applies in, in this IEC standard. And it's, you know, something similar to when there's enough quantity of material there for there to be a hazard that needs to be protected. Well, it's sort of a circular definition and it leaves open room for interpretation, leaves open room for how much. And that's sort of what we, we talked about in this episode. We covered a lot of ground on the situations that might need to be considered. Yes, you can take a very narrow scope I think this, we didn't get into this in the interview, but that's probably about um, your boundary conditions. Like when you look at a system, where are you setting the boundaries? Are you just focusing on this box that we're charging with a known amount of powder? Um, but what about upscale? What about downscale? What about storage? What about trucking, shipping? What about where that material builds up in the system? If we install dust collection systems, what's going on in the dust collection system? Are we creating more hazards rather than um, preventing hazards? So very quickly, the scope, the boundary conditions for a question like this grow. My big concern is that if you take the narrow scope view and opt out of doing a hazard analysis, hazard assessment, then you might miss the, the, the bigger picture. On the flip side, there are operations on which negligible extent is the word that was used from the vapor code. There are operations where you just don't have enough material. You know, if you, if you have a jar of sugar on your mantle at home, on your kitchen table, that's probably falls under negligible extent if we could define this. So there are, there is this situation where you may not be able to generate the pressures, the flame impingement hazard, the radiative hazards, and the burning particle hazards on workers, on processes, on equipment. That's not very well defined. And since it's not very well defined, it's pretty easy to say, oh, I think this falls under this or it doesn't. Um, at the end of the day, we, we sort of expand their scope in this discussion, then collapse it a bit and expand it again. I think uh, if you're, you're processing any powder sorbing in a meaningful way chances are you need to at least take a, a cursory first look at the hazards involved and we gave a lot of ideas and thoughts and, and concepts behind this in this podcast episode um, i do want to highlight the note that keith put in there at the end about um, potentially having a, a ichemy institute of chemical engineers project related on something about defining this challenge of negligible extents that's something that sounds like a, a good idea to me. It sounds very interesting. We'll have Keith's contact information in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 167. That's number 167 if you want to contact him um, and discuss that, or if you want to contact him, talk about any of his work otherwise. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust, making them safer out there every day. 